how do you glorify God with your body, whether married or single? You might remember from last week, Paul finished with the instruction, and you can, if you weren't here last week, all you have to do is look up uh, to the last verse of chapter 6. You see that Paul finished with the instruction, glorify God with your body. Well, this week he applies that instruction to a couple of specific situations. Uh, Some might call it a funny coincidence that this passage falls on the same week that we have our children with us in the gathering today, which happens once every four or five weeks or so. Zai obviously thinks it's hilarious. And I think, actually, that God has a wonderful sense of humor. And for whatever reason, this is how he ordained things to uh, occur this morning. Now, you might uh, scoff at that and think, uh, well, sure, you could blame God for that, uh, or you could have just, you know, changed your preaching schedule so that the kids didn't have to be in here for the talk with all the adults. And that's true. We actually discussed that possibility for various reasons, obviously. We want to be wise and sensible and considerate of our children. But in the end, we decided that by the hand of the Lord, this was how things would be this morning and we could make it work by me just being more careful. So adults, I would like you to just know what I'm saying. Children, if you guys can all look at me, you look at me, now you are, of course, as always, encouraged to listen uh, to what I'm saying as we work through this passage, uh, and we, we love that you are in here so that you can do that. So what, while you're coloring in whatever it is, you are, I, would, I would encourage you to listen to me. But uh, if after this sermon, you ask your parent a question, or one of your parents a question about this sermon, and their answer is, I'll tell you when you're older, then you just have to accept that answer, okay? Got it? Good. Excellent. Now, <laughs> now you might think that uh, that's a strange way to introduce a sermon, but today's whole scenario... How today's whole scenario actually relates to our passage in an important way. All of us here this morning are in one of two categories that Paul addresses here in this passage. You're either married or single. And if you're dating, for the purposes of this passage, you're in the single category. But whichever your category in, you are there by God's providence. You are there by His sovereign will. And while it's true, you still need to make choices about that, about what you do in that um, scenario, those choices are made knowing that God is in control of all things. And so in returning to the question that I asked you at the beginning, how do you glorify God in your body, whether married or single, the very first thing that we ought to say is that we trust that God has us where He wants us by His providence. 
and that as brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, this ought to be something that we take an interest in whichever of those categories we find ourselves in. Whether you are married or whether you are single, this is something that we should know more about and understand more of what Scripture teaches about it so that we're better able to understand and love and encourage one another. Now, there is much to say about this, so let's get stuck into it. Uh, normally, I like to guide you methodically through the passage and comb each verse as we go through it, but because there's just so much to say, I've had to be a bit more selective. So you'll need to make sure that your Bibles are open so that you can follow along and not get lost as I work my way through it. And uh, if you are taking notes, then do that as furiously as you can. All right. This morning, I have four points. And the first is having your spouse. Note the quotation marks. Last week, I mentioned that Paul was using a euphemism in that passage, which, as I will happily explain again, is a term to describe something, uh, describe when you use a word or a phrase uh, in replacement of something else, because to speak about it uh, too plainly or too harshly might be a bit rude or blunt, and so you want to use something that is, is a bit more subtle or, or softer in its language. And usually the point of a euphemism is that everybody knows what you're actually saying, even though you didn't say it plainly. Well, for the sake of the children, that is what I've done here. Okay? And the wording itself actually comes from verse 2 in our passage. Paul uses that term. In verses 1 and 2, uh, Paul is here responding to yet another Corinthian saying. And most likely, it was written in the letter that he got from them. So you see in verse 2, he, he, you'll see in quotation marks what he has to say uh, from there. Now, the situation seems to be that uh, there were some in the church who were suggesting that it was better for a man not to have a woman because it means you are more spiritual. And they were using this logic to justify denying that to their wives. That tends not to be a problem in our culture, but in this culture, with a certain group of people, that is likely what was going on. And now the, the emphasis on the man here shouldn't be missed because it gives us a window into the world uh, that Paul is writing to and it's actually very relevant later on, which I'll talk about shortly. And now you'll notice that Paul doesn't flat out deny this statement. He doesn't say, no, that's actually incorrect. And we'll see why in verse 7. But what he does is make it clear that this phrase that the Corinthians have used with him doesn't apply in marriage. Because of temptation, he says, a husband and a wife should have each other. Paul's not talking about just getting married. We can read that and think, you know, we see the word have and we think, oh, so Paul's saying, I should just get married. No, that's actually not what he's saying. As I said, to have is a euphemism that was commonly used in Paul's day. As a matter of fact, we've already seen it in uh, chapter 5 of this chapter, sorry, of this letter. And so Paul, who understands people, who understands their bodies and how strong a force this kind of temptation is, he goes on to describe how husbands and wives need to understand that same thing and how God has made them. 
So Paul makes it clear in verses 3 and 4 that a husband and a wife have equal authority over each other's bodies. They have equal authority over each other's bodies. And so because of that, they have what he calls conjugal rights. Conjugal here simply means relating to marriage. So he's talking about the rights that married couples have. And he's specifically referring to this right of having your husband and wife. Paul, he uses the word rights in the true sense of the word. He's talking about it as, uh, it's like a financial obligation. So if I owe you $20, you have a right to that $20 from me. It's your right to extract that from me. That's what he's referring to here. That's how he is speaking of this union. Now, this kind of language in the context of marriage can scare people and for legitimate reasons. But before you write off Paul as a misogynistic pig, let me help you understand the context a little bit better. Firstly, notice that Paul is no longer talking here about the rights of the man. He's not talking just about the rights of the husband. This is a two-way street. It might take two to tango, Paul says, but both of you are now in the lead, which in actual tango is probably a terrible idea. But here, this is what Paul is saying. You both now have the lead. Husband to wife, likewise wife to husband. Husband has the authority over the wife's body. Wife has authority over the husband's body. Now, to our modern ears, this, this sounds kind of obvious, right? You know, we, we sort of think, uh, duh, Paul. Don't you know that God made male and female equal and that marriage is a relationship of mutual responsibility and sacrifice? Well, I'm, I'm sure Paul did know that. But as I mentioned before, this kind of thinking was not the norm of the day. Marriages had the function of creating family unions and units and children, but not pleasure. The husband, he was the one who called the shots, and the wife, she was the one who was expected to just be okay with him having concubines and mistresses, or maybe even visit places where you can pay for such services. Paul is saying, uh, Paul's saying that the wife's body belongs to the husband for the Corinthians would have been their or oh, duh moment. But for Paul to then say that it goes the other way, that the wife also has authority over the husband's body would have been a huge shock. Huge. And this emphasis on both parties continues right throughout the passage. Now, we, we must not miss this. We must not read it and hear it with our modern ears and just think it's a given. So if you have friends who try to tell you that the Bible is a patriarchal book and that you know, it demeans women, you can actually point them to this passage. Paul carefully and intentionally shows that marriage is a one flesh union where both spouses have equal rights over one another's bodies. Make no mistake, this is 
an intentional and incredibly countercultural reordering of marriage that Paul is giving compared to Roman and Corinthian society. You see, if you think of conjugal rights in the context of a marriage between two people who don't know the Lord, who don't know, who don't look to Jesus' sacrificial love for us and who seek to love their spouse in the same way, if, you, if you're hearing the term conjugal rights in that context, then yeah, it doesn't work. But when the gospel is the center of the marriage then it does work. Conjugal rights suddenly don't become a tool of manipulation or womanipulation. They become a tool of deepening your relationship. That's because the husband and the wife understand what it means to love self-sacrificially as they look to Christ. And so Paul tells them in verse 5, not to deprive one another. Do not deprive one another, he says in this. Some, have, uh, some commentators have complained that this passage uh, doesn't do justice to the, the fullness and the beauty of marriage and all of its other joys. They say that Paul is, is saying that, you know, satisfying this physical urge is just the only reason to get married. And like how... How crass is that? But you need to understand that, as I said, Paul is addressing the specific issue of men who are trying to justify denying having their wives. He writes about the beauty of marriage in in his other letters. Ephesians 5 is a great example of that. And so here he's addressing a specific area that the Corinthians were specifically dealing with. And the point is, If you're married, you do not have ownership of your body. It belongs to your spouse. Now, as we saw last week, for every Christian, whether married or single, for every Christian, for every person who follows Jesus, you've already given up the rights to your own body. God is your body's boss. He is your body's CEO and He tells you what to do with it. Which is why He tells you at the end of chapter 6, as we saw last week, to glorify Him with it. But for married Christians, you have a middle manager who also has authority over your body. And yes, unlike, contrary to, the way we sometimes treat middle managers in real life, you actually have to do what they say. They do have legitimate authority over your body. Now hear me clearly. You cannot take this passage and use it to demand things from your spouse in an unloving and selfish and perhaps even an abusive way. You cannot do that. That is not what Paul is saying. And if that's something that you are doing, then you need to repent, ask for forgiveness from your spouse, and work towards cultivating relational and spiritual intimacy in your marriage. 
Paul's emphasis here is mutuality, equal rights to one another's bodies, not one dominating the other. It's not that you have authority over your wife's body so you can demand that she do whatever you want her to. She also has authority over your body. And so in the context of Christ-like self-sacrifice on the part of the husband and humble submission on the part of the wife, you work out your own physical needs together and then to seek to self-sacrificially love one another and constantly communicate, compromise, and put one another first. When you love each other this way, you will not be making selfish demands. When Robert and I first got married, now, just relax in case you're worried about where that's going to go. Despite not being mature in our faith, one thing that I'm glad that we managed to grasp at that point in time, from the get-go, was that marriage was a relationship of sacrifice. Both of us always sought to sacrificially love one another. And I'm thankful to God that He graciously built that into our marriage from early on because it has produced great fruit over the years and it continues to produce great fruit. And so it's it's not like this area of our marriage is perfect, but I'm thankful that we understood that mutuality from the beginning was necessary and that this has enabled us to flourish in this area despite the challenges that we have faced. Husband and wife. If this is a sore point in your marriage, if this is something that you are struggling with, then let me urge you not to just let it go. I know that there are a myriad of factors and challenges in marriages, in marriage, and in particular with this. So please speak to one of our elders, speak with another godly member in our church, and keep watering the seeds of relational and spiritual and physical intimacy in your garden bed. It might be a bit awkward and a bit difficult, and yes, we don't want to be oversharers. And yes, we, we don't want to just indulge in unnecessary details, but you need to understand this is a necessary, essential part of your marriage. And if there are problems here, if, there, if this is putting a strain on your relationship, then that is perhaps a sign that there are other areas in your marriage that need careful attention. So kids, you have my permission to ask your parents if they are watering their garden bed. Okay? Good. Parents, have fun with that one. Because God understands how important this is, as does Paul. Paul gives one exception in verse 5 and says... You should only stop having one another in order to pray. Now, why Paul mentions this is a little bit unclear because he does, after all, in 1 Thessalonians, instruct us all as Christians to pray without ceasing. So it's not like we need to stop so that we can pray, right? 
And so why this specific devotion to prayer uh, is, is there, we can't be sure. But what we can know is that this was to be done by agreement and for a limited time. And do you notice the mutuality again? By agreement for a limited time. A spouse doesn't have the power of veto to say, uh, nope, it's time to deny ourselves, husband or wife, and devote ourselves to prayer. No, it is a mutual decision. But even then, Paul is saying it as a concession, not as a command. He's saying, look, if you really are feeling hyper-spiritual and need to do that, then sure, fine, go ahead. But in reality, you don't need to. And that's why he says, don't deprive one another. Having one another as husband and wife is important, not just because it's one of God's good gifts in marriage, but because, as Paul says, it is also one of the ways you resist Satan's temptation to sin in this area. And spouses should love, serve, and devote themselves to one another in this way. Okay, JR, you might think, that's great for all the married folk in the room, but I'm single. What about me? How do I stave off Satan's temptation? Well, my friend, that's what point two is for. Now, if you're single and you just groaned at the second point, having the gift of celibacy, I don't blame you. It was a little bit unkind of me to introduce this point that way. But I did it to make clear what Paul actually is saying here. When Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, in verse 7, what do you think he's talking about? What's the gift that he has that he's referring to? I've already given you the answer, haven't I? (laughs) Given the context, Paul is clearly talking about his singleness, but there's something about his singleness that we need to grasp from this passage. After suggesting to the unmarried and to the widows that it's good to stay single, he then goes on to say in verse 9 that if they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry. Why? Because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. The kind of passion he's referring to is clear. Paul's not suggesting that if you're single, you should try to stay single like he is, even if you are burning with passion. No, the gift that he's referring to is that of remaining single without burning with passion. That is the gift of celibacy. If God has so filled your heart as a single person that your mind and your will and your passion is to serve Him, then praise God. As Paul would say later on in this chapter, you don't have the extra anxieties and responsibilities and distractions that come with marriage. This is why Paul doesn't flat out refute the saying in verse 1. He's saying, yes, it is good to be able to devote your life to the Lord's work. That's a good thing. That's why he says, I wish all of you were like me. But if you are burning with passion, he says, don't be crazy. Don't try and just pretend like that doesn't exist and that that's not there. He's saying, if you want to get married, then get married. 
You see the difference? But you know, that's easier said than done, isn't it? It's like as if Paul was saying you can just kind of head down the road and get married. No. So let me say a few things. Firstly, Paul is not suggesting that the celibate life is for the spiritual elite. Paul is not suggesting that the celibate life is for the spiritual elite. Unfortunately, our friend Augustine from last week had basically this view, which eventually became the standard view of the Catholic Church. This is the verse that was used to say and to justify that priests, anyone who wanted to be one, must be single. But to take that view is to miss what Paul is saying. Paul is not making a value judgment on their spirituality based on whether they're the same as him or not. He's not saying that you should strive for it against your body's will. He's saying, as he does later regarding other spiritual gifts, that he would love for them to have the gift of celibacy, but that doesn't mean this gift is somehow superior to being married. You see there in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says a similar thing about the gift of speaking in tongues. Yes, there is a preference, Paul says, but no, there is no spiritual pecking order. If you are single... You don't have to feel guilty about desiring marriage. Which brings me to my next point. Secondly, if you're single and desire to be married, then you should take steps towards that becoming a possibility. But a word of caution. Don't do it the same way the world does. You see, the world has the tendency to treat this one flesh union as the pinnacle of human experience. As though if you never experience it, then you will never truly live. That's why so many in the world are so quick to have this experience without marriage. They don't care about the context. This is supposed to be the most incredible thing you can ever have. So let's just have it however we can. But you need to know that they are wrong. Yes, it is a good gift of God. But if you are a Christian, no, it is not the most incredible thing you will ever experience. That will come for all of us, whether married or single, not in this life, but the next. The most pleasurable thing you will experience as a Christian comes not in this life, but the next. Do you believe that? Whether singled or married, do you believe that? Do you live your life today knowing that your best life doesn't come now, but in eternity? If you're single, this should affect you by driving deeper into knowing God. By driving you deeper into wanting to be like Him and finding your greatest joy in Him every single day. And of course, this should be the case for all of us. 
But if you are single and you want to increase your chances of getting married, put God first. Think about it. If God is the one that you love above all else, even above your own spouse, then what kind of person would you be seeking in a spouse? Clearly, if that's your heart, you're going to want a spouse who loves Jesus more than you, more than your children, more than anything else in this world. You're going to want someone whose heart burns the same way as yours. And so if you want to make yourself more attractive, then desire God above all things. Be happy in Him more than anything else that is going to increase your chances of getting married because it will make you attractive to the people that you want to attract. It might make you unattractive to the people of the world. But are they the people you want to attract? Now, I get that you can't ignore other factors. That's fine. We can talk about personal grooming and the need to brush your teeth, etc., etc. How you can meet other Christian singles. But this must be your first priority. Your first priority. Once again, I'm so thankful that Robin and I knew this when we got together. Both of us were looking for people who had their contentment in Christ and lived for Him above all else. Both of us knew coming into our relationship that we didn't want somebody who was going to seek their fulfillment in the other person. It's why, even though we've had some significant changes in our own faith and significant challenges in our lives, that our marriage has only grown stronger because of it. If you desire marriage, it is good to pursue it, but only, only in the context of pursuing Jesus as your greatest treasure. Thirdly, though you can obviously do things to increase your chances of getting married, Ultimately, God may sovereignly ordain that you remain single. This is why Matthew 19, 11 to 12, which we read earlier, points out God's sovereignty in this. Ultimately, though there are some who choose to remain single, like the principal of Ridley College when I studied there, or Paul who had the gift of celibacy, sometimes we are single not by our own decision. And this is where you need to really lean into God's attributes of omnipotence and omnibenevolence. Now, kids, somebody wants to chime in. You guys have studied this just recently. Can anybody tell me what omnipotence and omnibenevolence are? You can just yell it out. But this is the only time you can yell something out. Anybody? Adults, can anybody tell me what omnipotence and omnibenevolence are? All, no, not all-knowing. All-powerful and all-good. Always good. God is all-powerful and He is all-good. 
If you have turned from your own sin and put your trust in Christ, then even if God doesn't give you a spouse in this life, He is still good to you. He is always good to you. He has promised you joys beyond your imagination in the life to come and joys in this life that perhaps you never would have anticipated, that perhaps you never would have wanted. And now that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Fighting sin and temptation is hard. But know that you are not alone. Because each of us have crosses to bear. And that is the point of the church. As a single person, you don't battle these things on your own. And perhaps you hear me say that as a single person and you've heard that before. And you think to yourself, oh yeah, but you know, you're saying that as a married man who gets to experience having your wife and being a dad. But if you do think that, yes, I appreciate how difficult it must be for you. Yes, I can only empathize with you to a certain degree. But what you and I, if you are a follower of Christ, will always share is that following Him will always be cross-shaped even if the shape and the size of the crosses are different. That is true for every Christian, whatever their difficulty. If you have Christ, you have everything. If you have Christ, you have everything, and it doesn't matter whose mouth those words are coming out of. Whether it's the agnostic gay man who was converted and is still single, but whose identity is now in Christ. Or the wife of the unbeliever who is learning to find more contentment in Jesus. Or the parents who struggle with difficult children that take up all their extra time and energy. Or the brother whose dreams have been dashed and destroyed. Or the brother who has lived eight decades loving Jesus and remaining single by choice despite the difficulty of great loneliness and sadness at his lowest points. Those are all actual examples of people today who can tell you honestly and look you in the eye and say, if you have Jesus, you have everything. And there are millions more throughout the church's history who would say the same thing. Whether married or single, you will have crosses to bear. And whether married or single, your greatest joy will always be Jesus in this life and the next. Single brothers and sisters, I don't ever want you to feel like that you are somehow empty or incomplete if you're not married.
And this is why it is vital for us to love one another well as God's church. We are to be brothers and sisters with one another. We are to be the family of those who don't have one. We are to be the mothers and fathers of those who never had any. We are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We need one another. You know, Christians say the church is a family all the time. I hear it constantly. But rarely have I seen a church actually think hard about what that means and what it costs. Couples, families, are you willing to welcome your single brothers and sisters into your homes, loving them deeply and sacrificially, helping them fight sin and temptation and the challenges of being single? Single brothers and sisters, are you willing to help the couples and the families in our church offering to run errands for them or watch the kids for an afternoon or look after them when they're in the gathering with us on Sundays? I praise God that our church has kicked off thinking and praying about this seriously and seeking to live that out. Let's keep doing that. Because if we can do that in the best of times, then that bond that keeps us together will enable us to withstand the worst of times. And in a way, that brings us to point three. Having a commitment to marriage. I'm going to tell you straight up that in these verses, I'm not going to be able to answer all of your questions about divorce and remarriage for several reasons, which you can ask me about later. But there are certainly some things that we can say about it, about this passage. So let me first begin with the most obvious question that I'm sure all of us have wrestled with at some time. What does Paul mean when he says that this charge comes from the Lord and not from him? And in addition, what does Paul mean when he says in verse 12 that the next charge comes from him and not from the Lord? Aren't we reading the Bible? Isn't this all supposed to be God's word? Well, the first thing to say is that Paul believes he has apostolic authority, which he would say later on in this letter. So... Paul knows that his instructions are authoritative and that God is speaking through him. Secondly, and more importantly, these verses make a lot more sense when you realize that he's talking about Jesus specifically when he is referring to the Lord. Most of the time when Paul uses the term the Lord, he's referring to Jesus. He did it in last week's passage. And so in verses 10 to 11 of chapter 7, he is summarizing Jesus' teaching on marriage, which is found in Matthew 5.32, Mark 10.11-12, Luke 16.18, and Matthew 19.19, which we read, sorry, Matthew 19.9, which we read earlier. Jesus affirmed God's original design for marriage, that it was a lifelong covenant between husband and wife. 
which we also read about in Genesis 2. So Paul here is affirming what Jesus himself taught. He doesn't mention the unfaithfulness exception, but he's affirming the fact that marriage is meant to be a union that endures. And this is yet further evidence that even though the Gospels hadn't been written by this stage, there was already an oral tradition of the things that Jesus had been saying. The fact that Paul takes pains to point this out. And when we understand that this is what Paul is doing, it makes sense of verses 10 to 11 and 12 to 15. When Paul says that I, not the Lord, in verse 12, uh, is what I'm about to say, he does that because he's addressing a new situation that Jesus didn't address. The situation of a Christian married to an unbeliever. Now, to be clear, this next section isn't justification for marrying an unbeliever. Now, that is a whole sermon on its own. But suffice it to say that Scripture is pretty clear that a Christian shouldn't marry a non-Christian. You can, if you want to take notes, you can write down 1 Corinthians 7.39 and 2 Corinthians 6.14. No, what Paul is referring to here are marriages that for whatever reason are unequally yoked. Most likely that he's referring to a spouse who has converted to Christianity and their spouse now has not converted to Christianity. And given the context, it seems like the issue that Paul is addressing here is the Corinthians' concern that remaining married to an unbeliever would somehow make them or their children unholy or unclean. You might remember a few weeks ago in chapter 5, Paul talks about how he wrote to the Corinthians not to associate with immoral people, and the Corinthians misunderstood what he was trying to say. Well, it's quite possible that they are applying that same misunderstanding to the instruction of marriage, uh, misunderstanding of that instruction to marriage. And so Paul here is reassuring those people that this isn't the case. Actually, he says, it goes the other way. It's not that you are married to an unbeliever and, and, and somehow their uncleanness is going to impact you. No, he's saying it flows in the opposite direction. Because there is now a believer in that household, the spouse is now holy as are the children. But the big question is, what on earth does he mean by holy? Holy. <laughs> Now, these verses, uh, you, if you have any uh, Presbyterian or Anglican or Catholic friends, uh, have often been used to justify the practice of infant baptism. Uh, and though those different denominations differ in the details, the gist is that these verses point to the children of a believing parent being part of the Christian family, therefore, covenant extends, blah, 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 etc., we should baptize infants. Yet... The problem with that view, of course, is that if you were to apply that logic to the children, you must apply that logic to the unbelieving spouse. Because Paul uses the same word to describe both. If you're going to baptize your children, you should baptize your spouse. I'm not suggesting you do that. And the only way to wriggle out of that is to say, well, it doesn't apply to the adult because they're old enough to decide for themselves. Now, you can see why it's tricky to read that into the verse 
especially because Paul is clearly not talking about salvation, as you can see from verse 15, 16. And although it's certainly true that most of the time Paul uses the word to make holy, he is indeed talking about salvation. Some examples already in 1 Corinthians in chapters 1 and 6. There are also at least, there's at least one obvious example in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 29 where the word to be made holy is not being used to refer to salvation, as you can see there. So indeed, what does Paul mean? Well, here is a puzzle for the ages. But given everything that I have just said, it seems to me that Paul thinks that in some way, the presence of a believer in a home has a sanctifying effect on both the spouse and the children. Their lives bring the salt and light of Christianity into their homes. We see something similar in 1 Peter 3 when Peter encourages wives of unbelieving, spouse, uh, unbelieving husbands to be a good witness to them in order that they might be saved. Rather than, under, like under the old covenant, a person where a person was made unclean by coming into contact with something unclean, Paul is saying that here the believer has the opposite effect and makes the unclean clean. You may know some examples of this. A mother or a father is converted and as a result, their children see the witness of that parent and how the Holy Spirit has transformed and changed their lives and that child comes along to church and they come to know Christ. Sometimes a spouse as well is also saved through that same change of life in their believing spouse and through their prayers. This is why Paul can tell them to remain in the marriage and not need to seek divorce. And yet interestingly, in verse 15, Paul gives another instruction, which, as we've already noted, is a new one. If the unbelieving spouse separates, he says, let it be so. Why? Because the unbeliever is not enslaved. Now, it's important to understand that the one who makes the decision here is the unbelieving spouse. A Christian ought not to seek divorce themselves from an unbelieving spouse. But if that unbelieving spouse does choose to leave, Paul says, you are called to peace and you are not duty-bound to pursue reconciling with them as he instructs the Christian couples in verse 11. In giving these instructions, Paul, just like Jesus, honors God's original design for marriage. And once again, there are lots of complexities around this that I cannot go into. But here, the basic principle is right there in black and white. If you're in a mixed marriage, you are called to peace. And if your unbelieving spouse chooses to go, you may let them go. And if they choose to stay, you have the opportunity to be salt and light to them and to your children. And that brings us to our final point. Having a love for the lost. 
For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You see, the ultimate hope for an unbelieving spouse is that they would be saved. Whether that's through maintaining a faithful witness in the home or through acting peaceably in their departure, the hope is always that they might be saved. Don't you think it's amazing that as we preach through this letter, regardless of what it is that Paul is talking about, regardless of the specific issue that he is uh, uh, really targeting, he so often comes back to the importance of salvation. Have you noticed that? Whether it's rock star orators buying into fancy philosophy, or whether it's spiritual infants who look like the world, or whether it's the church neglecting its duty in expelling the immoral brother, or whether it's Christians dragging one another before the courts, whether it's succumbing to the temptation of immorality. Through all of that, Paul's driving concern is that the Corinthians would be saved and that they would bear fruits that are in keeping with repentance. That is the motivation for the Christian spouse to remain married and to be a willing, uh, to remain married to a willing and unbelieving spouse or to maintain peace in their departure. That is the motivation. And it ought to be our motivation with anyone we know who is not yet saved. Does your heart burn for the lost? Does your heart burn for the lost? Do you desire to see them know Christ and know the joy and the satisfaction and the fulfillment that you have found in Him? The kind of joy and contentment that cannot be found in either marriage or freewheeling singleness? Because that is one of the best ways that we glorify God with our bodies, whether we are married or single. We devote our bodies to the task that Jesus gave to all his disciples in Matthew 28. We go and we make disciples. Is there a yearning to serve the Lord with the rest of your days to fulfill this task? Do you look around you and do you see the lost? Does your heart break for them? Because if there isn't, then this whole conversation about marriage and singleness and what to do with it is really just a side issue. If everything that I've just said about these topics is what interests you more than Jesus, more than loving and living for Him, then my friend, you may be losing your first love. Or perhaps you have never found it. And if that's the case, if your heart has grown cold to those who need to be saved, then I urge you to meditate on the cross. 
Meditate on this message, on this gospel message of Jesus' death on the cross for your sin and for mine, on the fact that on that cross He suffered the wrath of God so that by turning from our sin and putting our faith in Him, we might be saved from that just penalty that we deserve. Jesus died in our place. And He calls you to repent and believe. Sit at the foot of the cross. It is there that you'll see that He gave His life for you. And He is worth giving your life in return. Sit at the foot of the cross. It is there that you will see that regardless of whether He gives you a husband or a wife in this life, He is the perfect husband who will one day return for His bride, the church. Sit at the foot of the cross. Because it is there that you will see that Jesus was there by God's will. As Isaiah 53 tells us, as God used the sinful actions of men in the greatest evil that the world has ever known to accomplish the greatest good that the world has ever known. And He did that for you. He did it so that you might find your first love, your greatest love, in Him. So that you would have a burning love for those who have not yet been saved. Does your heart burn with passion for the lost? You see, God's providence extends beyond just trusting Him for a spouse. Beyond just trusting Him to sustain you through a difficult marriage. Beyond just trusting Him to get you through singleness. God's providence is about understanding that it is in Jesus that He holds you. He has saved you and He holds you and He shows you His great love for you in Christ on the cross. He is good and you can trust Him with your life. You can trust Him with your marital status. Will you Trust Him. And will you glorify Him? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Jesus. We thank you for your great love for us. That you did not 
leave us in a state of condemnation. But you have provided a way for us to be saved. Lord, I pray that we would never be flippant with that, nor take it for granted, nor live as though it were not true. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, enable us to glorify you in our bodies, whether that is in a marriage, whether that is single. Do that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.